0: I've been playing with new ways of describing what I do for a long time. What I help people with is technology-enabled divergent innovation.
1: Oh, I've got to write those words down. You're listening to Ear, Brain, Heart. An experiment in showing up. I'm Mark Stedman, and I'm working to understand how we can bring our whole selves to our work in our marketing and in our everyday practice. I discovered the concept of neurodiversity listening to a podcast by Dan Harmon, the writer of one of my favourite sitcoms. Since then, I've come to understand how, as a techie, my need for control has led to solving problems that weren't necessarily the problems that needed to be solved at that specific moment. Had I Matthew Bellringer in my corner a couple of years ago, my work might have looked a lot different. If you identify as neurodivergent, Matthew is the mentor you meet along your hero's journey. He helps reframe people's so called deficiencies into superpowers, and he's my guest for this episode. We talk a lot about what it means to be different, but we started by discussing a social network it's taken me a
0: while to embrace. For me, you know, I, I tend to do the majority of my, my marketing on LinkedIn. Yeah. I stay away from all of the platforms owned by Facebook. Mm -hmm. Not just for the kind of, I was going to say meta reasons, that's an appalling (laughs) one. but not just for the kind of bigger picture reasons, but because fundamentally the way the platform thinks about interaction and relationships don't work terribly well for me Mm -hmm. and how I think about interactions and relationships. And I find LinkedIn, as social networks go, is probably the closest large platform to the way that I think about things. Maybe Twitter as well. But I think... um, that there's something much more genuinely open about the conversations on LinkedIn. And it's interesting to do in a professional context. I think this is a really important part of it. You know, a lot of the content on LinkedIn is actually very slick and kind of glib and not very affecting. Mm. So it does very much stand out when, when, when there is more humanity in that work context. And I think that's not because LinkedIn. LinkedIn's almost leading in this space. The idea that you can be human at work is still not fully realized by any means for anyone with any needs that don't fall right into the middle of the mainstream. When I say the mainstream, I typically mean white, middle-aged, able-bodied, neurotypical, cisgendered, middle-class, University-educated men.
1: It's funny that there is. There's. It's such a long categorization that covers just like
0: default human
1: being. I, it, you know,
0: it, 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 those people to be in so many of like you know it, they're actually quite a small percentage mm. of the population, which is why it's so surprising they're so massively overrepresented <laughs> yes. at the top of. Most organisations and in yes. government and everything, but well, when I say surprising, it, it, it indicates that there is something other than probability, <laughs> you know, than just a, than, than just a raw probability. You know. Yes, and so I, I think it's a really interesting one to to actually, you know, provide a platform where 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 people are articulating their experiences, their real human experiences, and the consequences and and, and the ways of working with that, and I think it's. For me, it's it's a different way of thinking about how and why we work, mm. actually. And it, it feels like there's a kind of emerging group. There is there is some filter bubble stuff on, you know, it's, it's sure. a social network. And I think it's, to some degree, it's indicative of our networks. There is there is a lot of the other content still on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. But I think it's interesting that it's found some degree of a home there.
1: There can't be, well, I was going to say, there can't be a... Um coincidence but perhaps it is that i i find it interesting anyway that of the social networks i can think of linkedin is the first if not only of the major ones to do simple things like uh gender pronouns Mm. to actually just put that in the profile as an option rather than people having to add it to their name or edit well you know choosing to 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 you know to add that is that that information is then readily available for those well i was gonna say for those who need it for for those who, who want to use that information and i it's something i use a fair bit when i'm writing about other other people if i'm you know writing about a journalist and saying they've covered something it's really useful to be able to see their preferred pronoun and you would think a network like twitter would it would behoove them to add a single, simple field. Mm. (laughs) And it just, it shows that as much as I think to a certain community, LinkedIn, probably not to the community that we speak to, but to a large proportion of people, LinkedIn is viewed with a degree of snobbery. And yes, the interface does feel like a Microsoft Word thing, but it, it does seem to be a considered space where they are thinking about those things more than more than other spaces are.
0: Yeah, I, I think the underlying ethos of LinkedIn has always felt more comfortable for me than, than many other social networks. I, I've read Reid Hoffman's book about startups and, and and some of the some of the ethos behind it, and I think it's a for me it, it it comes from a good intent. How well that's operationalized is always a question, but it comes from good intent. Whereas I'm not necessarily convinced that every other social network does. And I, I really like your point there that there is, it isn't just about making people feel good about themselves. In that sense, you know, it's not vanity. It's actually helpful for us if we're working with a person that we understand their needs. We understand that we've given them an opportunity to explain themselves in terms that make sense to them, and and to so you you don't misgender someone, or you don't you know make any other. Mistake and and because I think that is one of the one of the big challenges and one uh, one of the resistances that a lot of people who don't experience themselves as marginalised in some way go through a lot of fear. You know, I'm I'm I I think a lot of the resistance to to more openness and inclusivity actually turns out to be not. Necessarily fear of the person themselves, but at least as much of fear that you might say something or do something wrong, and you don't know how to engage with a person who is a member of this group, and you're afraid and and but that is then kind of ends up being projected into something different and I think actually scaffolding this is 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 very helpful. I'm reminded of
1: a of an ancient, but by today's standards, an ancient book now called. I believe it's called "Does He Take Sugar," and I think I I don't know if it was a child's book, but I I heard about it when I was a kid, and the point being that it's about questions being asked. You, 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 simple things, and this was back in the 80s, and, and so you know, I was gonna say it's a different time, I don't know how different it is. But you take the idea of someone in a wheelchair, um, and someone pushing that wheelchair, and you ask the person pushing the wheelchair if the person in the wheelchair would like a cup of tea rather than asking the person in the wheelchair. And it's it's it seems silly, but because I think we think it's 2022, surely that doesn't happen, and I think. It, it probably still does and i think probably more to the case we we probably avoid just avoid the subject of tea altogether because we don't want to get it wrong we you know we we feel like there's as i said earlier the tripwires but we we feel like there are these tripwires and and it can be uncomfortable do we do we have to just the other thing is i'm really conscious of is when anyone has a degree of difference is and we saw this a lot, I think, in the Black Lives Matter movement. Is it's not the person with the difference; it's not their job to educate the person who is typical in in whatever whatever division that you know, if you like, that we're talking about.
0: I, I completely agree. It's one of the really big one of one of the difficulties is is it puts all the burden of difference on the person who is marked out as different. Mm-hmm. It's like all of the consequences, all of the costs, all of the. You know, it, essentially, it casts someone as being at fault, and then it becomes someone's, in inverted commas, responsibility. Though it's actually outside of someone's ability to respond very often, to then kind of articulate those needs in ways that the person who is part of the mainstream understands, the conventional person understands, and and to do all of the work. Mm. And for me, that's problematic on multiple levels. One of the primary levels is that almost everyone who is a part of any minority who has learnt to engage with the conventional world successfully will be adapting almost automatically. In neurodivergent circles, it's often called masking. In, in, in circles around culture and race, it's sometimes called uh, code switching. But that adaption is always going on and so, when you're asking someone who's already done a lot of the work just to participate in the space, to then do even more of the work, so you can just understand it very easily and trivially, you're asking a huge amount. And you're also in a professional context. You're asking someone to be a professional domain expert in something that they've got no, you know, it's not not their thing. It's like, yeah, you know, I. I be, not every neurodivergent person is a psychologist, and nor should they be. No, you know, they're, Maybe they're, they want to be a programmer. Maybe they're a programmer, you know. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're whatever they are. You know, it doesn't imply that you need to be able to explain all that in those terms. And for me, that's one of the really problematic parts mm. of it. However, where this intersects is that's very much around the generalization and the generalizability, like describing causality, clustering, planning, strategizing. And that is definitely something that isn't necessarily something that belongs to a person. However, the one thing that always does, and from my perspective, actually, is the thing is it's very hard to ask an offensive question in this space. And I'd like to kind of explore offensive questions a little bit afterwards, mm. but is that idea about one's own experience It's like mm-hmm. your experience of a thing is inarguable yeah. you experience it this way why you experience it this way and what you could do about it that those are areas that are less well known mm-hmm. <laughs> you know those are areas that we could explore with others and you know there there might be validity but the fact that you experience it a certain way is yours and a lot of the problematic stuff in this whole domain comes from this invalidation of, of, of an experience of the world and comes from the inability of people who haven't had the opportunity to develop the capacity to see and work with other people's experience of the world when it's fundamentally different from their
1: own. That domain expert thing is, is, is fascinating because I, I, as someone with a visual impairment, I, I, I don't really know where the limits and the edges are of what i have you know one of the 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 most common and well-meant questions that i get is how much can you see and that's a really difficult question to answer and i've sort of got better at kind of pushing back and sort of saying well i don't have your site to compare it against so i don't know and Mm. and and it's also really hard because people want to Often they want something they can latch onto, and sometimes I'm not able to give them that. They want to be able to latch onto a comparative, a, 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 a yardstick, if you like. And so it's like, well, you know, if you look at this thing, is it blurry? And I'm like, I don't. I don't, actually, I'm not trying to be obtuse. I don't know. It's just it's far away, so it's small. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know if to you it looks less far away or less small, or if it is that small, you can still make it out. Like, as you were talking also, I was thinking, I kind of just want a page on a website somewhere that I can just point people to, or just throw them up a QR code or something and say, if you want to know all the stuff, here's all the stuff, it's in really simple, plain language, because I haven't got the spoons today. You know, I haven't got the energy to, and it's not because you're asking a bad question, it's not because you're a bad person. I just I'm just trying to cross the road dude you know it's just <laughs> or,
0: yeah I'm, I I think it is it's it's just like the, the, there is a, um there is a quality to a question that when you the, there is no value for you as an individual in answering it <laughs> you know it's like sometimes when someone asks you know it's the difference between an interesting question and an uninteresting question mm. is this question going to give us create some am I going to learn something from answering this question mm-hmm. is this a real conversation or is this you asking me to do unpaid consultancy? <laughs> There's a really interesting idea I've been exploring around the concept of access riders, which is essentially to lay out one's kind of needs, one's preferences as well. Like what, what a baseline needs, what a preference is, and be able to articulate that in a nice, clear way. Just simply, again, and, and from my perspective, I like the concept of rider because it's not about like, You know, it's not a charity thing again, or a like pity thing. It's, this is the context I need to do my best work. My best work is valuable. We understand that. And this will help me do more of it. This will help you access this value. And I think framing it in those terms is a really helpful way to think about it. I also like the fact that rider has implications of kind of rock and roll. And like, Absolutely, but but I, I think that idea, you know, that we all and the thing is, we all have needs. We all have different kind of perceptions and awarenesses and needs. And the difficulty is, if you're conventional, you just don't hit the limits of it very often. The the environment is designed so that it doesn't you don't notice it. And so you never get it tested. You know, it's essentially it's like, you know, people talk about perfect vision. Well perfect vision would go on forever. You know? yeah. but, I mean that would be like I, I Superman vision. Seeing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be like, I can see this tiny thing on the horizon of, you know. It's not perfect. It's at, you know, process good, good enough for <laughs> yeah. whatever you're trying to do, and that good enoughness is another aspect of it. And I think everyone reflecting on their needs is a really helpful thing. It also normalizes that process. You know, that idea. That's that exactly all, what I was we thinking. All have yes. Different needs, and and one of the big issues is you know around adaptation stuff is people like oh you know we can't do that. It's expensive. as like or whatever. It's like, but the environment has already been designed in support of one group one set of people's needs. So the question is, is it desirable to improve that design in a way that encounters, that encompasses more people's needs Mm. rather than saying it, you know, seeing it as like it's finished, it's done, it's perfect. It's like, well, it is for one use case. Is that use case enough? And if it is, then you're making a whole set of other decisions about inclusivity that you're you're essentially saying, well, okay, then this this group of people is not valuable in this space, which is potentially a decision, you know, I, I don't actually have a problem with that per se. It's a reasonable decision in certain circumstances, as long as it's intentionally made, it's you know, it's it's justified, it's well justified and it has a, you know, you might say, okay, we're a really small organization and it doesn't make sense for us to fully adapt everything in a certain direction right now for, for a given set of needs. Because we don't have the resources, we can't benefit, you know, it, 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 it's a reasonable thing to say as long as it's a, a conversation, as long as it's a reasoned decision, and it's explicit. Because in, in many ways, I find it as problematic as creating barriers if you half-ass it
1: now, does half-assing it mean you're knowingly doing a shitty job, or you're doing the best that you can with the resources you have available?
0: No, I, I mean, I, I think for me, it's half-assing is when you are aware of improvements that are within your ability, you know, within the scope that you choose not to make. It's very often that thing of like, it becomes that difference of. How something is said it should be versus how it's experienced. Mm -hmm. It's essentially, it's very often interventions that are from someone who doesn't experience the thing as a barrier Mm -hmm. and how they think it should work. Mm -hmm. And the difficulty is that actually these can add up really quite considerably to the point at which... You get a situation that I tend to call functional exclusion, which is that there are no hard barriers to participation, but they all add up in such a way as it becomes not worth it.
1: So, yeah, I, I often feel that as well. We, you're just not welcome in this space, be that a virtual space or whatever. It's, it's just you're, you're not. It's not that you're deliberately excluded. It's just that you don't really. This isn't for you. Off, off your pop. This isn't for you. And that's sometimes how. I, I was going to say interpret it, but that's not necessarily fair. But that's well, sometimes how it I, rings to me.
0: No, you're right. It, that that is what the actual operation. That's that's what the experience of it mm. is. And and I think I have I have more sympathy for people. And I think it's actually more valid for people who say that explicitly. Say, mm. look, we have we are aware that this is not complete yet we are working in that direction and that's okay. It's absolutely fine to be, you know, to say, look, we have the will. And instead of saying, okay, yeah, we're fully inclusive and whatever, but here's a form you have to fill in in handwritten form you have to complete to tell us. And I think it's also partly because those, the, 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 the first spaces, the ones where we're aware of the limits and we've actually explicitly named the limits and the barriers are much more welcoming spaces and you're allowed to work with those things. You know, And, and it also gives you pre- the ability to prepare and mm-hmm. say, look, okay, well, I've got my way of dealing with this. So we can we can handle that and you can handle this and we can come to an agreement rather than the kind of like turn up and someone's going, okay, we're going to support you. Ready to, we're completely ready to support you. Oh. Oh you need that. Mm-hmm. Oh we can't do that. Oh no 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 no. No, can't do that. You have you have tried Have you tried this thing that <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's like yeah so so I think for me it's it's actually being explicit and, and knowing that no effort is perfect. Everything's going to be mm-hmm. limited. You know, and, and and working with this limited knowledge there's no shame in not knowing. No. There's shame in not wanting to know. Yeah. Or or not doing anything with that
1: knowledge when you are capable of and
0: you have yeah. the resources to. So so uh, for me, it does really relate to this idea of like how we, on both sides, how we articulate our experience and on the other side, how we support others in that and elicit that from others. Something that I come up
1: uh, uh, against every every couple of days, at least, and I'm, slowly giving up the fight because it's just draining and it just leaves me in Twitter canoes is, especially on Twitter, is someone posts something that they've written and they post it as an image. And what that means then is the message that that sends to me is if you want to read this, then you've got to zoom in. The text is now going to look really, really blurry because it's a really low scale image. And, And we haven't provided the text in you know, another form for you, so good luck, you know, and th- so often I will write to people and say, can you actually post this as text? Because a picture of text, a picture of some writing isn't, right. it's not text, it's, you know, and and that's fine. And it's, it's, the frustration is not necessarily that people do that. What I get frustrated by is the sort of defensive reaction or the idea that that is not their responsibility. Uh, and I ended up getting into that with, with someone about, well, it's not my, as the person who's having difficulty reading this, it's not my responsibility to make this more accessible to me. The internet, the, you know, the main thing that the internet it was invented for, and the web especially, is for sharing text. Like, that's literally what the web, that's all the web could do for quite a while was just to share text we're really good at knowing how we can share text and move text around the internet i think there's a way that we can do this on twitter
0: (laughs) i think for me it's there's there's i i in part i agree in part as someone who has doesn't i simply do not have the intellectual capacity for doing some of those kinds of things of my own accord so like the the process what's involved in in generating that kind of thing is something that's quite costly to me on a neurological level so there's a on some level i don't think it's the responsibility of the end user actually i think it's the responsibility of the platform to scaffold the end user in making things more accessible and support them in that
1: LinkedIn is very good at this. Again, if we go back, you know, you look at video, it's doing it for different reasons, but the reasons it's doing it are fine. When you upload a video, you are very quickly prompted to upload subtitles to go along with it. And the reason is because lots of people just scroll through video and they, they want to know what's being said without having to turn their speaker on. That's fine. But it also means the people who can't hear can also read the subtitles. And the fact that LinkedIn is very sort of it quite prominently displays that and facebook actually does as well i think twitter i think it has the option but it's a little bit more tucked away as as it is with alt text and so yeah i think that yeah there, there are there are places where this is getting better but i i do absolutely take your point i think it is it is on the platforms it's their opportunity to make this easier
0: yeah, and I, I think you're right also in pointing out that there are almost always really good use like there are there are often really good business drivers to implement usability improvements.
1: It's like you know, I, I do transcription for everything I edit. I provide transcripts for all of my client episodes that I, that I edit. All of my stuff is auto transcribed and then usually I'm sort of I'm correcting the most egregious errors as as I go through. And if I have to sell that to people, I will begin by talking about the fact that it's, kind of the right thing to do to make your stuff accessible to uh, as accessible to as many people as possible and there are lots of subtle reasons why that's uh, a really good and helpful thing to do but there's also the added benefit that the more text you provide to a computer or to a search engine the more it can understand about what you make and so when it can see that this transcript is, is attached to this podcast episode, it gets a lot better at understanding what the episode is about. And so yeah, that like, there are good kind of mechanical reasons why it's sensible as well. And if you need that to be the reason that you open up to more people, then sure.
0: I think for me, part of it is it's okay for other people to make their own decisions and that has implications about my interest in them and my relationship with them, but that's theirs to make. So it's like, if you choose not to make your stuff accessible, I'll take your word that it's not for me and I won't have anything to do with you. Yeah, it's like a market decision. I'm not in your market. Where we're talking about things just publicly offered like that, it's, I don't have a problem with that. Where we have a, a statutory requirement to engage with things, it's very, very different. So if we can't avoid engaging with services, then that that's utterly different. So
1: let's get on to uh, you. You want to talk about offensive questions, and so I'm uh, I'm curious.
0: Yeah. So this is one of the funny things is 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 a, in a lot of my work, one of the huge things that I get asked about from largely from leadership and management is I want to find out more about it, but I'm really embarrassed. I don't know how to ask the questions that aren't really offensive, essentially. Mm-hmm. And I think this does link up with what we were talking about, with all of the burden and the understanding about the general condition, and mm-hmm. that's that for me is one of the classes of offensive questions. That class I tend to call JFGI. Um, yeah. So the the questions that you could just Google and should mm-hmm. just Google mm-hmm. is 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 doing that. You know, you can ask me about my individual experience if you're asking about like well how do people with adhd do this well sorry i don't know. Right? well i mean in my case the difficulty is i kind of do but i could i can give you the author the 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 that view as well but for most people you know it's like how do it's like well i don't it's not it's not my business to know what how other people experience the world necessarily it's so it so it's a problematic question i really appreciate that take
1: of like because it gets us into that thing of the the whatever community, you know, the, the disabled community or the neurodivergent community. And it's this, and it's, just, you know, we, we hear the same thing with, with, with race as well. It's this idea that we're all in touch and we, we all check in with each other. And
0: yeah. I, I think it's, it, on some level, it's a capacity that's sometimes called active listening. It's that ability to engage with what you don't know and what someone else is telling you. Because very many of us experience, I think, if we're if we're if we're different in any way, we'll experience probably something that's an awful lot like what I would call the Joey meme, the, the 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 meme where like from from friends where one of the characters is explaining things to the other one of the characters one by one by one, and then at the end just says something completely different, and it's that experience where we're like, yes, this follows, this follows, and then they're just like. Then it just goes. It doesn't have any consequence. It doesn't sink in. It's like being, I sometimes call it being listened to without being heard. And I think to really hear someone who isn't, who doesn't share your frame of experience requires active investigation. Unless, because otherwise you're just asking someone else to figure out, like, to essentially read your mind and know your how you it's just like you were saying with that, it's so like I don't know how you see the world, so I can't tell you how this is different any more than you can tell me how it's different, and I think that's you know that 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 capacity isn't something that people are very often taught and get the opportunity to develop unless you are already different, in which case you tend to do it almost automatically. As a way of surviving,
1: I don't know if I have the words to articulate this properly, but that's a real interesting thing of getting to that conversation of, you know, like how much can you see? Well, I don't know because I don't have your thing to compare it to. It's like, well, yeah. Why don't I ask you that question?
0: Which and and I, that that for me, I I, I want to go through, and that ultimately is mm. my test. Is mm. is if you want a very quick thumbnail test about whether a question is offensive or not, try answering it yourself. <laughs> One of the other questions, one of the interesting things is if we're in any group that's different, but this is particularly true of people with a medicalized difference, mm. is that there is a dehumanization that comes with the medical experience of that. Mm. And so, for example, in the neurodiversity space, there is plenty of stories where a manager might, might, or, or someone in the organization might think it is appropriate to ask someone about their medication Oof. because Oof. it's like uh, do you, and it's like would we talk about this Oof. in any other context oh no. would you and so this is but you see what I mean so again it's yeah. like and this is this is another example of like it's a personal question or weirdly like um like very personal, there's something about being different, particularly in this this, this this kind of neurodiversity disability space, that makes our embodied kind of human experiences that are normally quite private somehow a matter of public discussion. Yes. It's like um, yeah, like having sex, going to the bathroom going to the toilet, all of these things are somehow allowable to, like, you know, some people, people think they are, they, mm-hmm. they, they are, they, and it's like, would you ask this of anyone else? Mm-hmm. Would you ask this question of anyone else? And again, that test, is it, would you, how would you feel about asking this direct question, you know, like, about you doing this? And again, if it's problematic, then think about whether you can ask it a different way, or whether you even need to know that.
1: That's yeah. I, I was thinking about that as, as well. Actually, yes. Like, do, do, is this just idle curiosity, or is this? And, and another point, like to anyone who's listening who maybe doesn't identify in any kind of sense of difference, or you know, you you don't have that that idea. I think. Because what what I think neither of us are saying is like you should never you should never do this or you should never ask these kinds of questions. But I think that litmus test is great of of especially for someone you don't know or don't know well. It's like would this question be offensive? I also want to make space for the eleven o'clock at night in the pub or in the in the conference center after an event, and we're all getting wasted. And someone says, you know what? I've always wanted to know this about you, like. If you as as someone who's different want to make you know sort of hold that space and and play and have that kind of fun moment where someone's like you know these are the questions if you know someone well enough and if the you know I, it really does come down to safety for me like when I used to work in in retail as someone who was at the time because of the work I did, my visual impairment was very. Prominent because I was working on screens all day. I was helping people fix computers And so that was always sort of right there and you know different people deal with that in different ways Most people don't really say anything But then there are some who make jokes and I think I probably lacked the vocabulary or the vernacular for it then But what I would say now is well There are certain people who get to make those jokes And there are certain people who don't and the people who get to make those jokes are the people I already know are coming from a place of Friendship and and we've already crossed that Rubicon. We we've we've dealt with that barrier. We know it's not a barrier. Versus the people who oh it's just banter, and I'm sure that's a that's
0: an entirely different <laughs> discussion I, I, I think we could it, well, have. Humor, humor is a really interesting one in this because mm. because humor is is a powerful way to explore and to share kind of experiences and the funny paradoxes that emerge. There's there's a that, that there is a kind of intent in in humour and in in a, in a question as well and and that it's always about the direction. Mm. It's always about where the lens is really pointing. And for me, what makes a space safe is: Am I free to turn that conversation, that question around? And we know that kind of late night chat is like, you know, you can answer it and then use it. What about you? Yeah, yeah no. or you can ask it, and I can tell you to go fuck yourself because we yeah. know ourselves well enough
1: that we can have that. It's like, oh, you don't get to ask that one, move on.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> yeah. and I think that that is a part of it. And the, the other the other thing around jokes is, like, who is actually the butt of the joke? Yes. Because this is one of the really interesting things when you look at someone like Frankie Boyle, mm. who is incredibly offensive on many levels, but whose main targets are privilege, his almost exclusive targets are privilege which is probably why he's considered so offensive actually <laughs> um, that the, his jokes aren't problematic in that same way despite the fact that they might be very unpleasant on, 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 a, <laughs> on a number of levels yeah. than the kind of more apparently banal less unpleasant ones that are about reinforcing the stereotypes and the imbalanced power dynamics and the and all of that that comes with it you know i i think for me that's that's when it becomes problematic is the because there are some very funny jokes about you know and if you ever get a group of people of any I, whenever I've been in any group of any kind of people in any form of minority, there are always a ton of in-jokes about being in that group. Mm-hmm. You know, I, as, as a drummer, you know, and most drummers I know share drummer jokes yeah. because it's, you know, there's a big difference in that humour and it's, a, it's, a, it's on some level it's a gallows humour. It's a way of coping. Mm-hmm. But it's also a way of subverting and challenging the narrative Or it's a way of reinforcing the narrative that keeps us, you know, that that marginalises us. And I think it also helps create
1: an an in-group when... That's why it happens, you know, you you get a group of people who share a difference together because so often people who are different feel like they are in the out-group in some capacity they might feel like they're they're outside looking in and so these jokes are a way to sort of ring fence to create a little space and say well these these are just for us because just just right now just for this moment this is just for us we don't have to be inclusive we don't have to do it this one these little jokes now they're just for us and that's okay
0: (laughs) and i think that's i mean in jokes is another part i think Mm. you kind of you know you're, you're alluding to this this in jokes and actually particularly for neurodivergent people there we we most neurodivergent spaces seem to develop their their in jokes because you know there's the, particularly certain neurominorities, autism spectrum condition in particular is associated with if you look at the diagnostic criteria you might see the suggestion that that kind of lack of humour mm. and it's absolutely not the case mm. it's just a different mode of humour mm-hmm. and that there's a different set of you know that the, the, but that process is still you know and it's it's actually is like when we are in a space of usness, and we're not adapting we're not masking we're not trying to reach other people, like reach that that norm, whatever that that the kind of conventional is, our spaces become very very difficult for conventional people to participate in in any meaningful way. That is again is a choice, and in sometimes sometimes it's appropriate, sometimes it's less appropriate. But it's notable for me that our participation in conventional spaces is no less easy than conventional people's in our adapted spaces.
1: Mm. I I don't have very many examples of where cuz I like I don't hang around with a lot of people with with visual disabilities where that is you know where that's the reason that, that we're hanging out but every it used to be every 18 months it might be every year now I go to a low vision center and I have a little assessment and it is it's it's amazing that maybe that and my parents house those are the two spaces where i can go and feel utterly just i'm not you know the mask is off i'm not Mm -hmm. i don't have to try to do anything other if i don't know where i'm going i don't have to be embarrassed because i know completely in this space like there are people with far more pressing needs and so you know there's this whole spectrum but everybody Has that basic understanding of, yeah, like I don't know what your needs are. Like, if you're looking lost or if you just need to know where the toilet is, I'll, you know, yeah, no no worries. And people get good at knowing and gauging how to, like, how much help to give and all that kind of stuff. Like, that's, yeah, it's not easy to navigate, (laughs) you know.
0: I mean, I, I, in some ways, it's, it, it is just a case of like the appropriate level. And I think that, you know, there's, 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 Overhelping and pandering is is, is 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 as problematic. And I, I, I want to be I think this does actually link us to some marketing and some back to, to social media and LinkedIn is there is problematic content for certainly speaking, you know, from my perspective as a neurodivergent person, that is essentially pandering in you know quite a lot of corporate efforts in their blandness and unwillingness to engage with the complicity and the complexity end up pandering and it's 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 pity and it's it's that it's the you know it's the asking for asking for help and then someone just assuming that you need everything done for you is like well no i just needed you to show me where that was i'm just like it's not i don't need you to yeah i don't I don't need you to help me to the yeah,
1: yeah like I, I just need you to take to show me where the toilet is i don't need you to hold my penis yes that's exactly the metaphor i
0: was thinking about.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's a that's a note to leave things on, isn't it? Well, we're not we're not leaving the episode. I just wanted to take a quick moment to check in with you, and firstly to say um, massive thanks to Matthew Bellringer for uh, joining me on this episode. It was an absolute blast of a conversation, and I think it was the second time where we did something podcast related and then just had a chat for ages afterwards uh, and and really got into the weeds about a, a bunch of stuff. He's a fascinating gentleman to uh to to listen to. Uh, as I think this episode evidences. So uh yeah, matthewbellringer.com and do check the show notes as well for links uh to to all the all the relevant things. If there is someone in your life who would benefit from hearing this conversation, please do me a solid and send them to slash 4 That is the shortcut to get to this episode so they can also uh, get to enjoy some of the wisdom uh, of Matthew Bellringer and some of the ranting of Mark Stedman. Next week, we have Anna Miltonberg on the show from Brand the Change. We got talking about entrepreneurship in Nairobi and how hope is not a marketing strategy, about how we can create change, some of my own stories around how I Began understanding how much I wanted to work with Changemakers. So that is all coming up next week. Uh, So uh, if you're not already following the show, then do do that. You can open your podcast player and search for Ear, Brain, Heart, and you will find me. Uh, So let us get back to our chat then with Matthew. And we start talking about being able to be given either a little bit extra time to figure something out or just be given room to fail and how that can be important to help us stretch our own comfort zones because it's very tempting for people who can see if we're struggling with something to want to be able to help but that kind of that can sometimes be a bit white nighty um, and so that's where we pick up the conversation with Matthew Bellringer.
0: There's, There's a really powerful idea that comes from actually comes from work with very young people and very old people around what it is to create environments that are not fully safe but safe enough mm. and this idea is the idea of the dignity of risk mm. oh what a fantastic phrase that there is you know part of human part of being human is the ability to put oneself at risk to be vulnerable to do things suboptimally to potentially hurt yourself to potentially you know Find out that something isn't what you hoped it would be, and like, or you can't do it after all, or that, and you know, and to bear the consequences of that and work with the consequences of that. And I think for me, you know, people often mistake denying us those degrees of freedom, denying that dignity of risk for support, when support is actually much more around the consequences and the scaffolding, so we know, you know, so we can know, we can make an informed decision about that in whatever terms we have to engage with that just as
1: we wrap up i in 2008 i was i went skydiving with my family and talk about the dignity you know the, the dignity of risk is i was i was offered the the ability to to jump out of an airplane and strapped to the strapped to another man's back and and all that was different for me is that we had the usual safety briefing we all participated in that and then as people walk into the plane my guy just took me aside and and like didn't really do anything he was just like yeah let me show you a couple of other little things make sure you're okay you you know how to do the this you know the the, the crossed arms and make your shape like a banana and all that kind of stuff so he just gave me like an extra quick little Mm. briefing one-on-one and then that was it you know we 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 cracked on and so yes i had the dignity (laughs) to take that risk Uh, but that level of support was just enough to be like we don't have to make a thing about it let me just show you these are the ropes yeah literally and 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 off we go
0: yeah, and I, I think it's for me. It's that is, it's acceptance that it doesn't need to be done for us. It just needs to be the same level of difficulty or similar, comparable level of difficulty as everyone else experiences. That's that, that's what's being asked for. Yeah, equity. Yeah, exactly. But for me, really, on a structural level, you know, it's like how can we support everyone in doing this? Because the the difficulty for me is, you know, when we're talking about. People who've never encountered these challenges to their experience, there isn't blame there. There can't be, because they've never. The environment has never given them the chance to develop these capacities. They've never been introduced to this thing, and how difficult though it may be to believe, if your ongoing kind of life experience constantly brings you face to face with it. But it's true. You know, you can be in a situation where. They simply do not encounter this, or at the very least, they can always move away from it if they do. They don't, they don't, they have the option of having it kind of, of not, it not being a thing. And so if you've had this situation, you simply do not have that awareness. And I think we are talking about scaffolding on both sides to support both people in, in, in an understanding, a genuine meeting of experience rather than putting all the burden on either or saying either is more problematizing either yeah if there's a mediator in between
1: you know be that a social network if there's a whatever it is then yeah being able to to for for that mediating space place to have some responsibility or, or I like to use the word opportunity rather than you know mm. to, it has the they have the opportunity to add that scaffolding and, and and encourage people you know in the same way like little things like we talked about the the inclusion of the pronoun you know maybe maybe there is a time in which it becomes easier or, or it becomes appropriate to have declarations of your needs so that as you talked about with the accessibility writer those who need that information can access it. Um, Well, Matthew, this this has been a pleasure uh, and this has gone in in very different directions and I'm very pleased about that. Would you like to tell the listener how they can connect with you and find out about uh, more of the work that you do?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I work from my own neurodivergence and, and a lot of my exploration of that is actually my work now. With an adult diagnosis of ADHD, there's quite a lot to process and quite a lot to understand. In some ways, it hasn't changed quite as much as I thought it would, mm. and like a lot of people who get a neurodivergent diagnosis, they go up to you know I've, I've told a few people quite a few people expecting them to go oh really I I, I had no idea and they're like yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah checks. that checks yeah. out yeah yeah, yeah that yeah. checks out that scans yeah. <laughs> um- <laughs> So, there, so there, there are a lot of patterns, and in many ways, it's been kind of bringing together the, 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 all of these threads. And I'm, I'm, I've become really, really interested in what it is to establish something new and do something genuinely different from these different perspectives. Because you know, we have talked about different experiences, and over time, if you experience the world just in a different way, you actually come to a fundamentally different worldview in general. Like all of the relations between everything hang together in an orderly way, it's just a different order to the way that conventional people might see it. And that yields a ton of advantages around innovation and change. So I am I support people through technology-enabled divergent innovation, so doing this differently and using the tools and technology that we have available to do it. And I support individuals and organisations who want to be a better space for this. I specialise in neurodiversity, but actually this all intersects with a whole load of other, you know, pretty much everything in this space, and and really making it good business as well. It's not charity. It's not just for because we, we because we should. It's because it is in in everyone's interest to do this. Because from my perspective, you know, these worldviews hold answers that the conventional one simply does not. Two really big, messy, wicked problems that affect everyone. So if people want to get in touch with me about that or um, anything else, then you can find me on LinkedIn, um, uh, Matthew Bellringer. And if you search for, yeah, Divergent Innovation Guide, you'll find me there. You can also find me at MatthewBellringer.com. And you can also check out. I run a live, live recorded web podcast called Delightful Descent, which, 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 Mark, you've been a, you've been a, a guest on, which is all about challenging implicit assumptions. And understanding the world from this different perspective and how we can do it in a fun, playful joyful way, you know which is which is absolutely core to what we're talking about today and yeah so do, do check that out it's it's very much I think the opposite and in some ways this edited polished podcast, it's all done live and it's all completely emergent and it, again this reflects playing to our strengths and it's okay to do things in a way that works for us and, and so it's my own exploration of that and yeah, do check that out and if you're if you're really interested in any of this and any of this resonates for you please do get in touch simply because one of the huge things i find is that everyone i speak to in this space doesn't think it's them everyone has this sense that what they are doing doesn't matter that much that they are not doing anything groundbreaking they're not doing anything terribly important If you are successful, you're successfully engaging with what makes you different and what makes you marginalised, you are doing something important and it would be great to talk to you for all sorts of reasons.